You know a dream is like a river, ever changing as it flows. And a dreamer's just a vessel that must follow where it goes. Trying to learn from what's behind. And never knowing what's in store Makes each day a constant battle or Just to stay between the show <laughs> Okay, hello ladies and gentlemen, I am Maxwell Ivy known around the world as The Blind Blogger. And this is another episode of What's Your Excuse? Where I bring you conversations with people who have overcome adversity, who have thrived in spite of difficult life circumstances, who have started out on their own and and begun a new unique business or people who I personally find interesting or inspiring. You can find these uh, conversations at theblindblogger.net or at wyexcuse.com or you can tell your your Alexa or Google devices to just play What's Your Excuse? And so today I am recording another interview that is going to be part of the lead up to the Mobility Matters Conference that's being put on by Portland State University. Uh, They are the home of a a training program for uh, people wanting to specialize in orientation and mobility. The conference will be virtual this year for obvious reasons. It will take place on March 3rd, and it'll be a gathering of experts and thought leaders in climate change, in- inclusive transportation, and also public space designed with and for people who are disabled. And then they have a link but it's just way too long a link. So I'm not going to try to read it to you, but it will be in the notes and it will be out before the conference. So you can uh, go there and reserve a spot and take part in the event on the third. And today I'm going to be speaking with Michael May and he is the uh, product evangelist for good maps a company that develops navigation systems for people who are blind or visually impaired, including navigating indoors locations. He's a former CEO of the Workforce Development Institute at Envisions in Wichita, as well as the Seattle Lighthouse, a pioneer in business and product development. Uh, he's also served on boards where he has a, uh, has helped with the development of of issues concerning the disabled, specifically the visually impaired. It says here he is a a world record holder as a blind as a totally blind skier going 65 miles an hour downhill. Yeah, that'll make my mom crazy just thinking about it. And he is also the subject of the book Crashing Through, which is soon to be made into a movie. And you can find him at three websites. You can either go to goodmaps.com to find out about the navigation products to crashingthrough.com to find out about the book and the movie and mikemay.org is his personal website. So Michael, uh, thank you so much for agreeing to sit down with me and I'm looking forward to having a great conversation. Yeah. Thanks for the invitation, Max. Well, I have to give all the credit to Amy and uh, uh, Sharon over at uh, Portland state for reaching out to me and suggesting the idea and then making all the arrangements. So all all I had to do was just show up and talk. So, um, all right. So you are blind and because of what is mentioned, it uh, seemed to me that you are also a former uh, Paralympic athlete, or at least uh, someone who was engaged in Paralympic uh, sports. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. I've been in what was called the world winter games before they be became named the Paralympics. I competed in Europe in two different competitions and got six medals uh, from from those. Uh, I went blind at age three from a chemical explosion 
and uh, I was totally blind until age 46 when I had stem cell and cornea transplants and got some low vision, very strange form of low vision. It's not the same as, as a lot of other people. And of course, that varies a lot with among all low vision people. Their vision can be central or peripheral or uh, low, medium, high. And um, But I have my own strange version of uh, a little bit of vision. So going from totally blind to low vision is a pretty unusual circumstance. I'm also a guide dog user or avid cane user when I need to, but uh, I love dogs, and I'm on my seventh seeing eye dog from the folks in Morristown, New Jersey. And if I'm not mistaken, the folks that were the first to do guide dogs in the U.S.? That's right, 1929. Yeah, yeah. So um, did, did you always have an interest in inventing? Is that is that how the chemicals caused your vision loss, or was that – or? Or is this something that that you grew into over the years? Because you've been involved in creating some wonderful technology, including the uh, the, the good maps that you're involved in today. Well, Max, one of the nice things is when your personal passion and needs happen to coincide with the work that you end up doing. So I would say all the way back to when I was a kid and when I became blind and fundamental to participating in life, was getting around better. And I think my sports involvement inadvertently uh, helped tremendously with that because if you're having fun getting around, it's not the same as going to a class and taking lessons and learning to get around that way or having somebody push you into it. You're playing with other kids on the block. You join sports teams at school. So I feel like sports were very instrumental in me developing good orientation skills. And that was just part of what was uh, very essential in engaging in life. And then when that overlapped with, um, with technology, let's say starting in the mid nineties, when GPS was first coming out, I found a real match between, oh my gosh, I've been missing out on all of this print sign information and location information and having to depend on sighted people and well-meeting friends and family to give me the information, all of a sudden I had an alternative. Not that I was going to not use those sighted assistants, but the fact that I had through GPS and millions of points of interest, the ability to hear what was around me, that really caught my attention and began my career that leads up until this minute where I've been involved in creating and advancing accessible navigation for blind people around the world. Right. And uh, how exactly does what you're doing now, how does it work? Well, most people are familiar with how GPS navigation works. And for sighted people, it's mostly about turn-by-turn uh, -turn navigation. Just tell me where to turn, show me my destination, show a map on the screen so I can be sure I'm headed in the right direction. What's different for blind people is that we want to know what's in between those turns. We can't see the fact that the map is showing we're headed in the right direction. So we reminder, we need, we need reminders that we're on the right track. And when we make a turn, we want to make sure that we we're in the right place. So the big difference between the mainstream Apple and Google and Waze navigation give you turn by turn is that the accessibility navigation apps give you a lot more verbosity, a lot more detail, and it varies from app to app, but there's probably on the order of 25 accessibility navigation apps out there. So people have a huge range of choices, a lot more than we when we came out with the first one on the iPhone in 2012. Now people have tons of options. Right, and so how does this app and the other apps that are out there, how does that play in with what we're what you're going to be talking about next week as far as the inclusive design of transportation or of stores and other businesses? How does that all come together? Well, it's interesting to look at the themes of the Mobility Matters conference 
sports being one. They have a keynote speaker who's a Paralympian. And as I mentioned, I think sports are a huge benefit to enhancing a blind person's ability to get around safely and confidently. Uh, but the sustainability component is also something to, to think about. And as it happens, blind people are probably walking more than your average sighted person. So through pedestrian navigation and using public transit, we really help to support the whole uh, climate benefits and sustainability that will be also a theme in this conference. So it's important that the navigation apps I'm talking about integrate with public transportation apps and that we work closely together with transportation agencies to try to improve the information, not only within the app, but once you get to a bus stop and you get on that bus, what kind of information are you getting? How do you make sure you get on the right bus? Because as we know, a lot, a lot of times they, they pass us up. And so there's some of these transit agencies have real-time bus information, and that information can be linked with the accessibility app. So we really want to have ultimately the complete trip that might be a combination of taking paratransit or rideshare from our house to a bus stop, getting on the bus, coming out the other end, and maybe doing the same thing again, taking another rideshare to where we're going, or maybe walking in between. So it's a pretty complicated equation. And our mission really is to simplify that combination. Uh, and you can't have one app that does everything necessarily, but you can have some integration and you can also have some education to help people learn how to use all these things together. Okay, so uh, what are some of the challenges you're facing with the integration? Well, there's, um, there's both technical challenges and also helping people uh, use things together. So <clears throat> what that means is that right now you can use, let's say a transit app, a next bus app or a move it or any of those. And you can also then let's say run good maps outdoors at the same time. And now you have two different voices that are speaking information that overlaps. Uh, and that can be sometimes a little complicated if you've got two voiceovers going at you at one time. Uh, so it, it takes some experience and uh, it's the kind of thing that's best done when you're in a car or on the bus and not when you're walking because you don't want to be learning a new navigation technology at the same time you're also dealing with your cane or your dog. So there's both um, the, the technical challenges of trying to get these to work together more seamlessly, which is a work in progress, and the educational part of it that goes with uh, users getting familiar with this stuff. And how ha how is it going on the the side where the information comes from? Are there challenges with the bus companies, the taxi companies, the businesses along routes as far as getting the information into the system? Well, the points of interest database and the map database are things that most of these apps, let's say these 25 apps I'm talking about, they all draw from similar sources. There aren't that many because it's very expensive to collect and maintain map data. So at Good Maps, we use OpenStreetMaps, which is a really a crowdsourcing way of knowing the streets that are out there. And that's a pretty comprehensive database. It's better in some places than others. It, it's really good in places like Portland, but it's around the world. Uh, those maps are free. So a lot of apps, uh, you know, blind people want to have, everybody wants to have apps that are free. And so in order to do that, you can't be paying license fees to the suppliers of the data. Uh, Google Maps um, do have a cost associated with them. There's also Apple Maps. And so depending on the app that you're using, they have these different map sources for the street data and also for the points of interest. There's also point of interest data from a company called Foursquare, which is primarily a crowdsourcing way of collecting points, which means that you have a lot of 
stuff that you might not have in the commercial databases, which is good and bad. Some people put in junk, and so you just have to know that when you hear, uh, you know, Joe's beer party, that that's some frat party going on that somebody decided to record a point at, and it's temporary and not really relevant. So you throw away the 10% of garbage, uh, but the rest of it is uh, it's pretty good. Uh, it is crowdsourced, so it can be very accurate at particular points. And uh, it's, it's also free, so the apps are able to be uh, affordable. Okay, and at least with the crowdsourced ones, it almost sounds like the sighted people are doing all the work and they really didn't intend and, and probably don't realize that they're providing all that valuable information that, that makes the lives of the visually impaired easier, the ones that are using that app, those apps. <laughs> well, that's probably true. Um, although blind people can do some work in adding their own user points of interest, uh, that's really helpful because there might be things that we want to know that a sighted person may not think about. Let's say you come to a, a big quad at a university and there's sidewalks that cross that quad that would save you a lot of walking time if you went all around on the streets. So you can mark those uh, access points on the sidewalks. Uh, I've done a lot of that. Uh, that's particularly useful on university campuses you might want to know more than just where is the building. You want to know where's the northwest door, where's the southeast door. So in my former company, Sendero Group, we really emphasized that user collection of data from early on, early 2000s, and added to the, the Braille Note and the Braille Sense and all those products uh, a user database that uh, got up to an order of 15,000 points of interest around the world that were often quite specific to what uh, the blind users collecting them thought was interesting and wanted to share with other people. Right. Now, as I think about these uh, navigation apps, uh, one of the things that you, you mentioned in your bio is including indoor navigation. So what are the different challenges of indoor and are there, is, are there also multiple options for people to get that sort of data? Yeah, indoor navigation is the new frontier. So GPS started becoming commercially viable in the late 90s, early 2000s. Didn't really catch on until we had smartphone apps. It used to be older Nokia phones that had um, an app called Wayfinder uh, in the early 2000s. Uh, and so it took a while for GPS to catch on and indoor navigation uh, doesn't use GPS because the GPS may leak inside through windows or skylights to some extent, but its accuracy instead of being on average 30 feet might be on average 60 or 100 feet. So you can't really depend on that indoors. The first indoor navigation technology I worked with was in 1995 or six. And ever since then, companies have been researching and trying to come up with positioning technology that would work indoors. So there's two things that you need in order to have a navigation uh, work. Outdoors, you have GPS, which is worldwide and it's free. And then you have the map data that's collected by the different companies that I talked about. So you match those things up and you have an app or a product, there's hardware products too, like Garmin, than others have, and you have a solution. Well, indoors, there are no maps and there's no positioning, and there are different techniques that have been worked on. The beauty of, of GPS is that it doesn't require installing any hardware anywhere. It's just up there in the sky, shooting down the signals, and that's how we navigate. Indoors, there's not an equivalent of GPS. So people have tried a lot of different techniques. One was called dead reckoning, which is like a fancy pedometer. If you put the pedometer on your belt and it knows which way you're pointed because of the compass and it keeps track of your footsteps and how far you walk, then you should be able to say, I'm starting at the front door, I'm going in this department store and the dead reckoning will track you so you could find your way back to that door in theory. 
but there's a lot of technical reasons that doesn't work very well. But people have tried to make it work. And then they got to beacons of all sorts of different kinds of beacons. Wi-Fi signals can be beacons. Uh, fluorescent lights were beacons. And then finally, Apple introduced iBeacons with Bluetooth signals about 10 years ago. And that started a whole trend that did become commercially viable. A lot of companies formed around creating Bluetooth beacons. And uh, a lot of them are still being used. Now, they do require installation of hardware. And if it's hardwired into the electrical system, it's expensive. If it's batteries, then you have to replace the batteries. Just like a light bulb needs to be changed, you got to change the beacon batteries. So that was an advancement, but at the same time, it didn't really achieve the ultimate goal of minimizing infrastructure development until we got uh, about a year or so ago, we came up with using cameras. So as cameras got better and LIDAR got cheaper and smaller, all of a sudden there was the possibility of imaging your environment. So that's what we have now at Good Maps and some other companies are working with this technology in different ways. Of course, Google was using LIDAR outdoors for getting precise street level information that they used. We have a guy with a backpack and a LIDAR rig that's sticking out of it along with cameras. And that mapper, that scanner walks through a building and it's taking those LIDAR, those laser beams, shooting them out and getting geo-referenced points, millions of them, to create a 3D image. The walls, the floor, the ceiling, the furniture, the doors, everything. Once you have that image, keeping in mind now there was no infrastructure necessary. You just walk through, you image the environment, you put this up in the cloud, and now you have an image of that building. And it's been processed so that it's now relevant with office names and staircases and elevators and reception desks and everything's been labeled. And so the user then can come along with their phone running the app and the phone camera then picks up the environment. It compares it with that image that's in the cloud and it says, aha, here you are, you're in the lobby. The reception desk is straight ahead. The restrooms are on the left, elevators on the right and no infrastructure, pretty good accuracy down to a couple of feet. Uh, and so it makes it much more viable from that standpoint, as well as the fact that now it's cheaper. And so the venue owners who have to pay for this to be mapped can get it to be affordable enough that we might actually scale this and see it happen in uh, lots of buildings. Yeah, I would imagine at this point, it's probably only in uh, government buildings or large corporate, the largest corporations, people that can afford it, but whether it's not just the payment, it's the continual upkeep of the infrastructure as it has been, that's been really the roadblock. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Cost is, is a huge factor and, and companies have to get it into their budgets and they have to, when you have a new technology, people are skeptical. They were skeptical of GPS way back when. I mean, I've, I've, when I formed my company, we struggled for years to convince users and rehab departments that they should pay for it. So, yeah, there there is that part of adopting a new technology that's a challenge. Part of what makes the justification of this even stronger is that once you create a map, it's not just for blind people. It's for everybody. Right? When you go into a store... And a lot of these big stores are mapped, like Target, Home Depot. They're, they're mapped very accurately, and those maps are related to their products. Now, those apps are not accessible yet, but they uh, you can go into a Target and pull up their product list and say, I want to find uh, uh, trash cans or something. And it's going to show a blue dot where you are and a red dot where the product is and a sighted person can use that to guide themselves to the, to the destination. And so the, the fact that the 
maps can have multi-purposes is really what makes them justifiable. Uh, it could be helpful also with maintenance, with asset tracking, which means, let's say, in a hospital, you have all sorts of equipment that gets put away into closets and they lose track of it, or maybe some of it gets stolen. And if you can connect all of those devices uh, electronically or through near-field communications and other techniques, you link them up with a map, then you can find stuff. And it makes people's time more efficient and it makes the equipment uh, more available because it's not lost. So that multi-purpose approach is really what, in the end, spins off to help blind people because uh, of all these other ways that the, the maps are useful to uh, organizations. Right. I was thinking that when you're talking about navigating huge places like a Lowe's or a Home Depot or an airport or a train station, that I've run across many a sighted person who wished that they had the opportunity to get help navigating these huge places. And, you know, as the quality of help gets, seems to get worse and worse at the, at the large box stores, being able to find what you want without having to depend on your memory, their website, or their help could be one of those things that really lowers people's frustration levels when they have to go out and shop. Yeah, exactly. There's some things you just have to feel. You can't order them online. And so having the flexibility to go and find what you need and be able to do it on your own or to go with a sighted person and help them find it. Sometimes <laughs> sighted people can be a pain because they don't like to ask questions. And so I'll find myself wandering around, wandering around. It would have been a lot better off to just go to the checkout counter, find somebody to help me, and then get, get taken right to those things. And you're absolutely right that service because of staffing issues these days is, is really diminished and uh, means that we need independence even more. And then I think about in airports, because I'm a frequent traveler, I often can help other people uh, to, to locate where is baggage claim, where is the ride share, uh, where are the gates. I often know that information in my familiar airports more than they do. And as it turns out, Max, most airports are mapped and people don't really know it. Now, those maps, just like the, the uh, department store maps, are not accessible. This is something that we're really working to change at Good Maps because those organizations may not want to remap their facility with our technology. We may need to try to make their maps accessible. So at an airport, when I get off a United flight in Chicago and it says I'm at gate C9 and there's 19 minutes connecting time to get to um, B4, uh, it shows the sighted person a map of where that is so they know how to kind of use a getting warmer method even if it doesn't tell them where to turn it shows them a map and that map is owned by united and so we really need to work with the airlines to try to um, re reveal that information to us or we can work with them to try to make those maps more accessible because i want to know you go up to near gate C16, you take the escalator down, you cross through the concourse up the other side to the B gates, you turn right and go down to B4. It's next to Chili's. Um, that's the kind of thing that we need to, we, we could definitely have. It's technically possible, but uh, it just hasn't been implemented yet. I see. So there's a lot of mapping that's already been done, but it's not accessible to any of the apps that any of the visually impaired people would currently have access to? Yeah, exactly. I I don't know what the real number is, but I'm sure maybe 1% of buildings in the world, big buildings are mapped. So that means you got 99% of them that need to be mapped by us, by others. And if we're going to scale this and really make it useful to, to blind people, you know, in, in the most number of places, we need to collaborate with others in order to do that. And certainly places like airport, airports, hospitals, government buildings, transit are going to be the first targets. Uh, universities, that's, that's why we've mapped the student union at PSU. Those uh, have a high interest. Students change classes every semester and so then they, they have to learn a new route. So we wanna be really useful in universities. 
So those are some of the target organizations that we're looking at. But there's also, um, we have some large corporations that have chosen to map their indoors so that they can make it uh, more accessible to all of their employees. And it also helps them to facilitate hiring more blind employees. Okay, so it seems to me like you've got a lot of different points here that if they could all come together, that uh, you could truly create an, an inclusive approach for people who are blind and visually impaired to navigate their world, not just their transportation, but their employment, their visits to medical professionals, their uh, outings for entertainment. But it's going to take some people are going to have to are going to have to change or alter maybe what they're doing so that all of this stuff can come become available in one place. Yeah, there there's a lot to be done. I mean, that whole equation of indoor positioning and mapping is a huge challenge and we have some good success, but there's a long way to go. And the, the scaling uh, worldwide is something that's uh, going to be an ongoing challenge, uh, but we've got a good start on it. And I think once, once you turn the corner with some demo locations so somebody can go in and walk around and have an aha moment, then all of a sudden the, the interest um, really ramps up. Uh, I haven't mentioned museums, but um, that's one place I really personally would like to have a lot more of it because accessibility in museums is mediocre at best. You go into uh, MoMA or some of these other big national museums and you might have access in some form to let's say 10% of the uh, exhibits and you have to listen through some headset that requires you punch in a number that's only available in print next to the exhibit. So it's not really accessible. With our indoor navigation technology, you can, first of all, browse virtually ahead of time. What are the exhibits? You find the ones you're interested in, you mark them as your favorites. Then you go in there and you get turn-by-turn -turn directions to the exhibit. And then there'll be a detail button and you hit the for more information, and it now can link to uh, an audio file describing that uh, particular location, just like those other handsets would, or it could be a text file that tells you about that exhibit. So you don't have to go at the same pace as the sighted person you come with. You can spend as much time as you want and go on your own, and then maybe you link up later and compare notes, which is typically how sighted friends and family would experience a museum and it's not not this dependent system that we typically have to rely on when you can't see the exhibits and the information that's written next to them as you're talking about museums i'm wondering in my mind because of my background i'm wondering about amusement parks yeah amusement parks would be good and Gosh, going back as far as, I think it was the 1997 NFB conference uh, at Disneyland. And uh, we used my old backpack system that we invented. And, uh, and Mark went around the park and marked different locations. So outdoors, you have the benefit of, of GPS. Uh, that, that's one thing you could do right now with uh, the parks. And they have tried different systems. They're not exactly meant for navigation. So I think there's a lot of room for improvement in amusement parks. Another place that has done some indoor mapping and is not really accessible are baseball stadiums. I think all the MLB stadiums are mapped. And several years ago, I tried one, one of the apps and it was 100% visual. It shows you where the hot dog stands are and the restrooms on a map, but none of that talks. And I would love to be able to pop up from my seat and go find things on my own without having to have a sighted person go with me to, to navigate. Right, because one, you're disturbing their enjoyment of the game, and uh, two, it's a sense of independence and dignity, and three, there's not usually a lot of of knowledgeable help available at those venues if you have to ask one of them for help to find something. 
Oh yeah, everybody else there doesn't know unless they're a seasoned pass holder or something. Um, that's that's different, but yeah, and I I'd like the idea of hey, I, why don't I go get a beer for you rather than you go <laughs> get one for me? That 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 is the dignity part. You're right. Yeah, I've been talking with other people who have podcasts uh, in the disability arena, and and the word dignity has been coming up more and more often. And it sounds like uh, if you could get all of the mapping that this, you know, this is definitely a step in the right direction. Um, what are some of the things y'all have done or think you could do to encourage these companies that have already done the mapping to open the mapping up to where y'all would have access to it? Well, we know that when there's some systematic issue, let's say with with a big company, with Rideshare, with Uber or Lyft, it's all about getting to the right person. And so that's the same thing with, uh, with MLB. I mean, they are a, a big organization, and I'm sure you have to go to the central office before you then deal with uh, the, the app developer. And, and these app developers are always sub subcontractors. So how do you get corporate approval and then you get access? Um, is It's a huge challenge. Um, sometimes you, you get surprised and it goes really smoothly. Uh, other times it's <coughs> you get ghosted. Nobody ever responds. Nothing ever happens. <laughs> Yeah, I've been I've been there. I have a suggestion for you, at least with baseball. Um, a lot of the minor league teams are independently owned. They're part of a federation, but they make a lot of their own decisions. So it could be that you could reach out to one of the minor league teams at the AAA level, have them implement it, and then use that as a kind of a backdoor into one of the major league teams or into major league baseball in general. Yeah, that's a good idea. I should find out if my my local Reno Reno Aces have um if they have any mapping in their park. My guess is they they probably don't. But um, there's um there's a guy who was involved in the blindness community and used to head the Oregon Commission for the Blind, Chuck Young, and in his um, second or recent part of life, he handles accessibility at Wrigley Field for the Cubs. And so I've uh, I have reached out to him to say, hey Chuck, um, how about it? What, what can we who can we hook up with? And uh, and you'll probably connect us with the right people. But it is it is a real challenge to find the right person and then make something happen. Right. And then even if you find the right person, um, these these most of these people they're in positions where they make decisions and they're busy people. So. Uh, they may they may have great intentions. They may see the value in your idea, but even with somebody who's really interested in helping you, it can take a while. I've, uh, I I I I help people sell surplus amusement equipment as part of my business, and one of the things that has been a big frustration for me over the years is trying to find not only the facilities manager, the person who handles the disposal of the older stuff at the amusement park level, but then. Uh, how to build that relationship to the point where when they do have a need to find a new home for something, they'll actually come find me. So it's, it's always difficult when you're dealing with major corporations, uh, so many levels of gatekeepers along the way to the decision makers. Yeah, you've got it. Exactly. Yeah. Well, what about government? How does it have, have they taken any interest like the, you know, your local state legislature or the, or the, you know, Congress, have any of them taken any interest in in helping with uh, getting the mapping systems adopted or opened up to you? Well, um, there's two aspects of it. Certainly government can be instrumental in helping to make this happen. So the Department of Transportation obviously is, is a key player. Um, the infrastructure bill that was passed has a lot of money in it specifically for making different aspects of transit more accessible. So we, we certainly intend to try to collaborate with the different transit agencies um, to, to add indoor mapping in, in their subways and, and in, their, in their railways, which is where a lot of that money is focused. As far as mapping a building, 
I mean, I would love to see the U.S. Capitol mapped, but you know, then they have all the security issues they worry about. Um, so you you have that uh, catch twenty two where they like to see it happen, but they uh, they raise those privacy and security concerns as well. So we we don't have uh, that I can think of right offhand any government buildings that we have mapped uh, at this point. I see. What about the any of the state the state legislatures or uh, any of the larger like some of the some of the county courthouses in Los Angeles or Houston are huge buildings. Uh, anything? Yeah, I think might... this, the same thing applies. That I, I think we'll get there. Nobody wants to be the leader, the innovator. <laughs> so once once you get a few good examples of where it works and where it helps, then all of a sudden you can and other people are willing to line up and get, get on board. Right. Which leads me to a question. Uh, what are y'all doing to draw attention to the places it's, it's being used and where it's working? Because until scheduling this talk, I don't recall seeing anything about good maps on any of my local or national TV feeds or in any of my Twitter posts from other podcasters. So I'm just curious, how are y'all uh, sharing or promoting those positive experiences with the buildings that have been mapped? Yeah, well, two things. It's it's a work in progress, and we started from scratch, and now we have you know, 75 buildings mapped, and um, so that in the in the scheme of things, that's very few. We've really tried to get some demo locations in different big cities. So that, you know, we have one in Berkeley, California, and we have the one in Portland and uh, a lot in Louisville, since that's where the, the company is based. Um, we've got a lot of traction in the UK. We've got about 12 railway stations that are mapped there and uh, one grocery store chain that has uh, implemented it in one of their facilities and plans to, uh, to uh, add that to some of their other facilities. So, but that, you know, those at the same time, it's impressive, and these are good examples. They are few and far between. So depending on where you live, there's not that much opportunity to go experience it in person. However, yeah. you can look at these things virtually. So once you hear about Good Maps, you can go download the app for free, Good Maps, uh, in the App Store and in the Android Store. We have two apps. There's Good Maps Explore. And that's the one that has the indoor navigation. And in that app, there'll be a list of the public buildings. So some corporations don't publish because it's only for their staff. So they won't be on that list. But the, the public buildings like the museums I've been talking about and PSU and others will be in that list. And you can virtually explore that location before you go there, like I was talking about with the museum. See what the exhibits are figured out ahead of time so that when you go, uh, you can have an, uh, a mind's eye view of, of what's coming up. And in terms of publicity, it's you know, that's the work in progress. Um, we have a great relationship with Intel and have received some very major international uh, publicity on their coattails uh, as they work with us on some of the, the future positioning and uh, techniques for let's say, presenting information through 3D audio. And um, they have all kinds of things they're up to. And we're um, fortunately can uh, brag about them as a partner. Well, that's, that does sound exciting, especially the 3D audio presentations. And so it's uh, one of those things y'all are just going to have to continue to work on it slowly until you get enough of a, of inertia built up to where, uh, more and more people experience it and then they start asking for it and people in positions of, of importance or uh, people with influence start asking for it. Yeah. And there's some key uh, organizations like uh, NIB national industries for the blind, and they have a hundred different manufacturing facilities around the country. Uh, we've been talking to a couple of those. Once we get into one of those and the others, Hopefully we'll follow suit. Uh, the VA hospitals, I mean, they're very complicated to get around. 
and uh, we're we're talking to some of those. So again, um, two places where uh, a lot of blind people would be going and working uh, that that we might be able to have on board uh, sooner than later. Well, that makes a lot of sense because I'm sure one of the objections you hear from business owners is is that we don't we don't have enough visually impaired people who come in here to make it worth us making the investment. Yeah, that's right, and and hence the the multi-purpose justification. We want them to realize, hey, this is this isn't just for blind people. By the way, you'll have more blind customers if you do the right thing and and you map this out, and we provide the user interface that makes it. Uh, accessible to blind people, but it also is accessible to sighted people. People in wheelchairs will benefit from the fact that they can choose the step-free mode and take them right to the elevator or ramps rather than uh, to the steps. Yeah, I wonder why some of the corporations aren't considering this as possibly a bridge to replacing some of their staff with with robotics. Um, If you can map if you can map a store for humans to navigate it, you could possibly also map a store for, say, a robotic shopping cart to navigate it. I'm just thinking out loud. I'm not trying to put nobody out of work or nothing, but it would seem to me once you create the map, there would be uh, other options for it beyond just a person individually navigating a store with it. Yeah, for sure. And there are plenty of or organizations using things like that. Uh, there's shopping carts. There's carts in uh, in hotels that will deliver your linens to your room. Robots uh, are being used in in a lot of different ways. I was just at the Consumer Electronics Show, and there was a host of robots with all kinds of jobs: uh, autonomous snowblower, um, carts that you could have go around your house to help people who might not be able to carry their laundry from one place to the other, or dishes. Um, so those those robots, like your vacuums, are all mapping the floor space. And when you're in a big building in a department store or something, it's a much more complicated, difficult map than um, than you might have in a house. But uh, those those machines or those robots are getting put to work definitely. Okay, and just on the other side of the of the issue, how how often do these locations you've mapped change and how does that affect the whole idea for mapping and and navigating indoor spaces? Yeah, the, we have um, good maps studio is the name of the online software web interface that we have for the venue owners. So if something changes in terms of the name, let's say it's a grocery store, and the name of that aisle changes. They shift the products around. The aisle's in the same place, but the name changes. They can just go in and quickly rename it. Uh, So that's how they manage it. If a new wall is put up, it's possible that could get drawn in remotely with our mapping tools, but it's also possible that we'll have to come out and rescan. If there's a whole new room or something, we would come out and rescan it. And as part of the pricing, when we work with a venue, we will write into the contract that uh, you know we're willing to come out and rescan 10% of the facility. So th- we we definitely address that aspect of, of, of changes. And some some places have very fixed locations, and others um, do have things that move around a lot, like grocery stores. I was thinking of grocery stores where they'll remodel a store every four or five years. In some cases, uh, I was thinking of hotels in some of the the larger vacation or uh, conference markets where they will uh, update those like every five years to 10 years, depending on who owns the hotel. So that's kind of what I was thinking about is the cases where things would be added to or removed from the physical building as opposed to just, you know, changing the names or changing the products that existed on a particular aisle. Right. Another application that um, we're addressing are exhibits and conferences. You mentioned convention centers. So their, their basic facilities remain the same, but what about, 
in the booths that are lined up inside of those exhibit halls. And uh, those are a little bit challenging because we need to do the scanning ahead of time. And those things don't get set up until the last days. But we are finding workarounds where we can uh, mark some or all of those booths. Uh, that too is a work in progress, but we will be demonstrating at the consumer, the um, CSUN, which is the largest adaptive technology conference in the U.S. at the Anaheim Marriott uh, beginning March 15th. So if anybody listening happens to be in the area or is attending CSUN, it'll be an opportunity to come by and actually check out the, the good maps mapping in a real world environment. Right. Well, as I remember it in most of these convention halls, there will be, there's usually a large percentage of booths that pretty much don't change in dimension, but it is change in signage. But then there'll be a certain percentage of the area that is available to people who want to bring in elaborate, uniquely created booths that, like you say, they'll assemble a few days or even a few hours before the opening of an event. Right. Yeah. That's, those are a challenge. Yeah, some of those some of those convention booths are like setting up carnival rides. It's some of those some of those people you're like, I know y'all are planning on selling millions, if not hundreds of millions of dollars at this event, but man, that's a lot of work. It is. I know at CES, some of those big companies like Samsung, they come in and they start setting up their booth um, three or four weeks ahead of time. It takes them that long to get the whole thing assembled. Okay. So bringing it back to the Mobility Matters Conference, um, what is your vision for, for the, the way people, visually impaired and, and people in general, would, what would be ideal as far as navigating the city we live in or, or you know, pretty much anywhere we want to go on, in the world? Well, I think the, the practical way to approach this is to think of your accessible toolbox. And it's important to collect the best tools possible. You can't collect them all, you can't afford them all, but you get the ones that, that will address the issues that you're talking about. And in terms of navigation, it's mostly a collection of apps. There might be some piece of hardware that's useful, but Mostly your phone and learning some apps are going to be the things to go in your accessible toolbox. Of course, you have your cane and your dog for mobility. You have a sighted guide for mobility, and you don't want to ignore those things. There's, there's certain things. There are obstacle detection apps now, but I don't think they, well, I know they don't replace the cane or the dog in terms of mobility. And so I think people need to, to think about that accessible toolbox and get really familiar with it, make a commitment to using the applications frequently because anytime you use something, you know, once a year or every six months, you, you go through the struggles of the learning curve and that doesn't help you if you want to get out and about and accomplish something. And I think um, the, the nice spin that Mobility Matters is putting on this is appreciating the, this accessible toolbox and what we use in terms of pedestrian navigation and public transit and sports in the context of a, a healthier way to get out and about and enjoy our environment. Okay. Um, and it, it seems to me, based on what you're saying about the toolbox, that we also need orientation and mobility instructors to be familiar with some of these tools and start teaching them along with the white cane. Is that, was that something you would agree with? Yeah, they have to be familiar with the tools. They don't necessarily have to be experts in using them. And a lot of, most O&Ms aren't going to be voiceover users because they're, they're not blind. And so they're, that's a real struggle for them to use the, the touch interface on, on a phone, talking phone. But, Certainly, they can be cheerleaders and advocates for getting blind people to, to use an app. You know, pick one. There's 25. You pick one that works well for you and, and then they encourage that uh, person to, to use it. And I think a lot of orientation mobility instructors these days are doing just that. Okay. And then as <laughs> individuals, what are some things that we can do to help this progress along as far as getting 
these systems adopted on a larger scale? Well, I think um, we need to do a couple of things as users. We need to advocate. We need to use the products, figure out what works well with those products, and give the manufacturers feedback. I mean, what we're doing at GoodMaps is based on feedback from users. Uh, one of the reasons I joined the company and that they hired me was because I have a deep experience with navigation apps and can bring that to the table and get this new app off to a, a strong start. And then in terms of uh, getting indoor navigation in your community, if you have a particular building and you know somebody or if you're if you're a strong advocate, you can lobby for this. And it doesn't take that much work to find out who the key person is at a particular organization. And we can easily get them a quote and get, get uh, introduce them to what it's going to cost and what, what, are, what does it take to get their building mapped for these different reasons that we've talked about. Okay. Well, I appreciate your time. And uh, I, I know that sports has been a big part of your life. And I know that you feel like it's an important part of this conference, Mobility Matters. And I have a, I have a host on my podcast network, Emily Trepanya, who might, might not talk to me next week if I don't at least ask a little bit about your experiences as a downhill skier, if that's okay. Um, how do you, I mean, I, I'm, I'm not, uh, what is it? What is that expression? Um, I'm not good to walk across my own yard some days. So skiing downhill is, uh, is beyond me, but could you like share uh, maybe one of the, tools that you used in order to be able to do that at such a high level and then maybe something as far as as uh, mindset that would allow you to do something like that. Right. Well, skiing is not everybody's cup of tea, particularly in the U.S., a very small percentage of people ski compared to Europe. And you see that when, when countries like Norway clean up in the Olympics. And then we have the Paralympics coming up starting on March 4th. So um, I'm always keen to pay attention to what's happening out there. Uh, there's a, a young, blind, um, low vision guy who's 14 years old who does free ride, which is where you go off of jumps and then you do these 360s and uh, 760s, <laughs> 780s, whatever it is. Um, and uh, he is visually impaired and, and uh, competes with sighted people in that. And he finishes in the middle of the pack. And there's a 60 minutes piece that's going to come out on him shortly. So the techniques that I used as a totally blind person was to have a guide in front. And they call out directions. And the more you ski with that particular guide, the better you get. So our key to winning medals and to going fast was that we really got to know each other and that I skied following that guide through a combination of his voice and the sound of his skis. And I learned to be no more than three to five feet behind him so that I could hear him super well. I see. So you had to trust him to the point that you could ski as close to him as possible. And he had to trust me that I wasn't going to decapitate him. Uh, <laughs> uh, so it's it's a two-way street. You You build that confidence over time. And once he knew that when he said left, I would go left. And uh, it's easier said than done when you get in some dicey conditions uh, to be able to do that. But I I feel super fortunate. I was just skiing this past weekend and to get out there, and this was with my uh, daughter-in-law-to-be, uh, skiing with her as a guide and be able to train people as a guide and ski anywhere and enjoy the, the athletic part of it and also the social part of it. It's really an incredible sport. I hadn't even thought about that, but you're right. It's uh, another... Another aspect of the sport is uh, communication and camaraderie. So it's uh, it's another type of inclusion, isn't it? It's a huge part of it. And, and the guide, one of the reasons we did so well competitively is because I competed with the same guide for 10 years. And most people I was competing with were lucky to have the same guide for a year. So we had a huge advantage over people because we knew each other well our, each other's techniques well, and we really enjoyed being together. And that was a great part about skiing around the world and competing and 
and uh, eventually getting invited into the celebrity circuit. And uh, we just had a blast together. Yeah, uh, my friend Emily Trepanier, she's a downhill snowboarder. And she, before COVID, moved from Ontario to Vancouver. So this year, first year on snow in two years, she's having to start with a brand new team. And I got to hear some of the audio from their first couple of sessions trying to get to become a team. So, Wow. Well, you should tell her to check out the Braille Mountain Initiative, which is um, a guy who was sighted and he was a backcountry ski guide. He became visually impaired, and now he's bringing that sport to uh, people who are blind or visually impaired in, in uh, British Columbia. And they go out on these one-week backcountry things, and they stay in a hut, and they ski all kinds of amazing uh, terrain with no people. Huh. And it's called what again? Braille Mountain Initiative. And, and what's, what's the goal of the group? is to experience backcountry skiing. Okay. Well, she was into skiing before snowboarding and still does both. So I will definitely tell her about that. And who knows, maybe that'll be, that'll be a, a topic of one of her future podcast recordings. Um, so I do appreciate you sitting down and spending some time with me. I, I'm really looking forward to the Mobility Matters Conference on the 3rd. It's a, it seems to be a, an unusually broad collection of speakers that represent a wide variety of disabilities and also represent a, a, a good variety of the government or nonprofit people whose goals should be to, to improve the lives of people with disabilities. That's it exactly. Well, I look forward to being there as well. And um, thanks for the time and, and covering all these different topics. Well, thank you for your time as well. I, I hope that uh, I did a good job uh, as as the guide during our conversation and uh, look forward to hearing your talk in a week or so. All right. Thank you, Max. All right. Thank you. Okay, so another great conversation as we get ready for the Mobility Matters Conference on March 3rd. This time it was with Michael May, and he's the ambassador, advocate, uh, evangelist for Good Maps. And it sounds like this could really help a lot of people, not just the visually impaired, but they have a lot of work ahead of them. And I hope that y'all will consider uh, either reaching out to the managers and owners of businesses in your area or finding out who the contact person is and then forwarding that on to Michael and letting, letting one of their people make the actual pitch. Either, I think, would help them. Interesting how much sports has been a part of his life, but really surprised for myself to learn that sports is part of this whole inclusion thing, that it's not just the athletic competition, it's the camaraderie, it's and especially with uh, with sports involving the visually impaired or other people with disabilities, quite often it's a team approach. But then, you know, for sighted people, most activities are team sports, even if it's an individual participating like in tennis or golf. Uh, so it's something I hadn't thought I was going to think about today, but, you know, Michael brought it out and it stuck with me. And uh, I hope y'all didn't mind me asking a question for my good friend Emily Trepanier from shreddingforgold.com because, I mean, I'm talking to a guy who's in the Hall of Fame. If I don't ask him, I don't know that I'd be welcome in Vancouver if and when COVID is over. Um, I thought it was interesting just listening to him go through the process that they've been through as far as first finding the right technology and then implement, introducing it and trying to get it implemented and it really does sound like there's a lot of information out there that they just don't have access to. And if they had access to it, they could make a lot more places accessible with these apps like overnight. At least that's the way it sounded to me. I could be wrong. I hope you will check out Mobility Matters. Like I say, I will post a link to the conference because the link I have is too long for me to remember. 
you can find Michael. You can go to uh, crashingthrough.com, which is where you can find out about his life story and the movie that's in the works. You can go to goodmaps.com to find out about the mapping program. And you can even reach out to them and say, hey, I got a building. Why don't y'all come map it and find out what it'll cost and and learn about even more benefits you can receive from it. And then finally, his personal website, uh, michaelmay.org. As for me, you can find me at theblindblogger.net. You can find me at wyexcuse.com. You can also tell Alexa or Google, hey, just play. What's your excuse? And she usually will. Um, I do hope that you will uh, consider uh, attending the conference. When it happens next week, it will be virtual. Uh, There are a variety of ticket prices available. And I plan on being there. I hope to hear to hope to find out that you're there too. So until next time, I know you have lots of things you could be spending your time on. I appreciate that you consider me important enough to follow me and bring me into your homes, your cars, your lawnmowers, your watches, etc. So until next time, take care now. Goodbye. Too many times we stand aside. And let the water slip away to what we put off to tomorrow has finally come today.